Well, hey, good morning and welcome again into our worship service. Wherever you are, however you may be watching, we're glad that you are a part of this time together this morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here at FBC. Just so glad that you're tuning in. Uh, as we continue in our worship and start to spend time in God's Word, uh, we're going to spend a moment in prayer to prepare our hearts. So would you join me? God, we love you and we pray that you would use this time. Lord, teach us. Uh, help us understand who you are and what you'd have for us. Lord, would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? Uh, would you, by your Spirit, help us understand your word and guide us today? Uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, in these past few months, we've all had to learn some new things as we've navigated this strange season, right? You've had to learn how to use Zoom, probably, how to mute yourself on Zoom, and hopefully how to unmute yourself on Zoom. Maybe you've had to learn how to use Instacart for groceries or wearing face masks out in public, or you've had to learn how to stop touching your face in public. We've had to learn some new vocabulary, Things like social distancing and flattening the curve, phrases that a couple months ago were nowhere on our radar. Maybe you've had to learn how to work from home with little kids hanging all over you. Maybe you've had to learn how to stay connected in relationships when you can't see people face to face. Or you've had to learn how to handle government laws and regulations that maybe you don't particularly like. Maybe you've had to learn how to trust God as you've experienced loss in this season, loss of a job or loss of someone you know and, and love. We're all learning things right now about how to navigate this season. As we've been figuring out how to navigate our crisis that we're living through, we've together as a church been looking at the book of Ruth and spending some time with these two widows from the Old Testament, and we're looking at how they navigated their crisis and the things that they had to learn. And hopefully it's helping us learn how to better navigate what we're walking through today. See, our friends in the book of Ruth, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, have suffered great loss. Naomi has lost her husband, and then her two sons die. One of those sons was the husband of Ruth. And so now Naomi and Ruth are both widows with no children in the picture and no income in the picture and little hope for the future. And on top of all of that, Naomi believes that God is against her. But Ruth stays by Naomi's side. And we saw last week in chapter two of the story that things take a turn for the better as Ruth goes out to find food for herself and Naomi, and she just so happens to glean in a field belonging to a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be a distant relative and who might redeem their entire situation. He's kind to her. He gives her food abundantly. And so there's this glimmer of hope at the end of chapter two that maybe things are going to work out for these two widows. But where we left off, Things were far from out of the woods, and so we're going to pick up the story and read on to continue to learn a few more lessons about how to navigate crisis. Let's see together how chapter 3 begins. Verse 1 says this, One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. 
Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he'll tell you what to do. A lot's going on here, but the first lesson we see for navigating a crisis is to plan with hope. Plan with hope. Notice here for Naomi, the wheels begin to turn. She's making a plan. Essentially, she's going to play matchmaker. She's going to say, Ruth, we are going to find you a husband. We are going to secure our future. Sounds reasonable. But it's noteworthy because if we think back to chapter 1, this is a a strikingly different perspective for Naomi. Remember what she was saying in chapter 1? Back in chapter 1, verse 8, she says, Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So notice, Naomi's sons die, and she says to her daughters-in-law, including Ruth, go home, stay in Moab, I'm a sinking ship, maybe God will be kind to you elsewhere, and you'll find rest and a new husband and a new home. But now, in chapter 3, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. In the Hebrew here, the language is the same as in chapter 1, finding rest for Ruth. But beforehand, she said, hey, go home, leave me, find rest elsewhere. You're not going to find it here. Now she's saying, we're going to together find you a home and find rest for you. You see, she started to see how God is connecting the dots in their story. At the end of chapter 2, some doors are opening. Boaz enters the picture. Her hope is restored. She's starting to sense that, you know what? God is up to something here. There's kind of a a nibble on her fishing line, and she's like, we're going to cast out again and see what God does with this. So in chapter 1, Naomi has no hope for her future. She's bitter and empty. But here in chapter 3, we're seeing signs that her hope is being restored. In, in chapter 1, she tells Ruth, hey, go find rest and a home elsewhere. You're not going to find it with me. But now, chapter 3, Naomi says, actually, you know what, Ruth? There is a way forward for us here because God's up to something. And we can be a part of his plan. And so, propelled by hope, Naomi makes a plan. She wants to play matchmaker. You see, Ruth has been working in Boaz's field for some time now, a little while, but they're kind of stuck in the friend zone. No romantic relationship has developed. And so Naomi says, here's what we're going to do, Ruth. Here's our plan. Step one, go take a bath. Say, what? Excuse me? Rude. So seriously, verse three, step step one, go take a bath. Get, Get cleaned up. Put on some perfume, some essential oils, whatever it might be. Set aside your work clothes, your your morning widow clothes, and instead put on your best clothes, your best outfit. Make it clear that you are available. Make it clear that you're interested in 
in marriage. And then the end of verse 3 here, very important, says don't approach him until he's finished eating and drinking. Now that's probably some sound life advice for any number of situations. Don't approach Boaz if he's going to be hangry. Okay, let him eat, drink, then go for it. Okay, he's going to fall asleep, the text says. And then Naomi says, Ruth, I want you to lay down on his feet. Fall asleep there. Sounds a little strange to us, right? Strange instructions. But essentially, culturally, what Naomi is telling Ruth to do is to go and propose marriage. Lay at his feet and propose marriage. This was a bold move. This was a risky move. This could even be seen as a a provocative move in their culture. It's a risk. And so I want us to see in the text that, you know what, sometimes faith can be confused for passivity. Sometimes belief in the sovereignty of God can lead us to sit back and say, well, you know what, if God is controlled and is in control, then God's going to do what God's going to do, and so I don't really have a part to play, so I'm just going to sit back. But notice that's not what's going on here. Naomi's Faith is restored. Her hope is growing. And rather than leading her to passivity, it leads her to action. It leads her to step out. My good friend Bronson always used to say, it's hard for God to steer a parked car. It's hard for God to steer a parked car. And so Naomi says, Ruth, let's get moving. Let's Take action. Yes, God is sovereign over all things, and yes, our lives and our choices matter. We have a part to play in all this. So faith, yes, and action, yes. So make a plan with hope. And so the question for us as we look at the beginning of chapter 3 is really, are we like Naomi in chapter 1 or Naomi in chapter 3? Naomi in chapter 1, God is against me. Keep your distance, people. I'm a sinking ship. I'm not even going to try. Or Naomi in chapter 3. You know what? God's at work. God's up to something here. Let's step out in action and in faith and see what God does. So lesson number one for navigating a crisis, plan with hope. Friends, I know there's so much right now that we cannot control. There's so much out of our control. But the question is, what can we control? What plans can you make? What responsibility has God given you? Rather than being a victim to circumstances, we can say, you know what, God, how are we going to use this time? How can we put a plan in place to see flourishing here? Maybe you need to put a plan in place to stay healthy, emotionally healthy, physically healthy. Make a plan to decide how that will happen. Maybe you need to put a plan in place to stay spiritually healthy, to stay close to God. How is that going to happen? How are you going to make time for prayer, for time in God's word? Maybe you need a plan to upkeep certain relationships in your life. Maybe you need to make a plan to address some concerns in your relationships or maybe in your financial situation. Maybe you've lost work and that's difficult Maybe God's calling you to step out in faith. Again, send out resumes, ask questions, make connections. 
Maybe God wants you to be really intentional with your kids in this time. And I know that some of you are already doing a lot of this. So it's just a reminder to continue to plan with hope rather than being a victim to circumstances. So we we notice then as the story continues how Ruth responds. Look at her in verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. And parents all over the world said, amen. What a great response, Ruth. I'll do whatever you say. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So we see Ruth act and she acts boldly. She takes a risk. And so lesson number two for how to navigate a crisis that we see in this chapter, act with boldness and love. She heads down to the threshing floor. Her heart must be pounding because this is a pretty risky move. There's a delicate sensuality even in the text. The scene is charged. Darren Shackelford has, has told me that this chapter is like The Bachelor, ancient Israel edition. Okay, Ruth needs to catch Boaz's eye. She needs to catch his attention. See, during the harvest season, the men would sleep often out in the fields at the threshing floor. Rather than coming back into the city of Bethlehem, they'd stay out with their grain. Again, the threshing floor was the place where uh, the wind would blow away the chaff and the grain would fall and they'd be able to gather in their food. And so to protect their grain, they would sleep outside at the threshing floor uh, to protect it from animals or thieves And so here, in in the middle of the night, out in the field, when everything is dark and still, Boaz falls asleep, and then he stirs and wakes to realize that his legs are kind of outside of the blanket. And he opens his eyes to, to fix his covers, and he sees a woman. And maybe it's because it's dark out, or he's a little groggy, and his eyes aren't quite focused. He doesn't recognize That is Ruth. So verse 9, who are you? What's going on? I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. Now on face value, it sounds like she's just asking for a, a snuggle. She's maybe cold and wants to cuddle. So let me have some of your blanket. Well, that's... Not really what's going on here. What she's saying is much more significant than that. To spread your your cloak over someone was a way of speaking of marriage, of, of protection. And so she's proposing to Boaz. Think about how, how risky, how countercultural this would be. A woman proposing marriage to a man, a younger woman proposing to an older man, a foreigner from Moab proposing to an Israelite. This is a bold move, Ruth. And she goes on, she says, you are a guardian redeemer for our family. It's a phrase that we've seen a few times before. A guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer was someone who 
protected the family. Someone who had a responsibility to care for the needs of the family. And so if a member of the family lost property, the guardian redeemer could purchase the property back. If a family member was sold into slavery, the redeemer could, could purchase that family member back and purchase their freedom. And so we see Boaz could be the answer to the problems that these two widows are facing. Boaz could marry Ruth and therefore secure her future and Naomi's future. A lot hangs in the balance in this moment. How will Boaz respond? Will he be offended by this countercultural, socially, socially questionable act? Well, look in the text. Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. I will do for you all you ask. Boaz essentially here says yes. He is moved by Ruth's kindness. He says, you are a woman of noble character. We all know. And notice in verse 10, this, this action you're taking, he says, is now greater than the kindness you showed earlier. What does he mean by that? What's he saying? Well, Earlier in chapter 1, remember Ruth made this pledge of devotion to Naomi. She says, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. I am with you now and forever. It was a striking act of loyalty and devotion. But now Boaz is saying, hey, what's going on here, what you're doing here in chapter 3, Ruth, this is even more significant. This second act of kindness you're showing, this proposal of marriage that you're making. Why? Why is that such an act of kindness? She's saying you are proposing marriage to an older man. We don't know how much older Boaz is, but he's older. And you're doing that so that you can take care of Naomi. So Ruth is not marrying for love, or she would have gone after younger men, as Boaz points out. You're not marrying for love, Ruth, but you are marrying me or seeking to marry me as an act of kindness to Naomi because that will secure her future. That will provide a continuation of her family line. So Ruth, this is a great act of sacrificial love. Your loyal love is evident. And because of that, Boaz is going to reciprocate with a loyal act of love of his own. Friends, if we pause here long enough to look at what's going on with Ruth in this story, her actions here will leave us moved, will leave us in awe of this woman's love. She leaves her home in Moab to be loyal to Naomi, to help her. She leaves her home, her family, what she's known to stay faithful to her mother-in-law, who's a widow. She forgoes now her own dreams, maybe her own expectations of marriage and family in the future so that she can take care of Naomi, 
So she takes care of Naomi and is working to secure Naomi's future at great personal cost to herself. Again, friends, aren't we moved? Aren't our hearts stirred by examples of sacrificial love like this? I think of the example of Maximilian Kolbe. I heard about this recently. He's a Franciscan friar who was imprisoned at Auschwitz back in World War II. One day, the guards decided that they were going to pick 10 uh, people, 10 prisoners at random to throw in a starvation bunker, and they would, be, uh, they would die there. They would go to their death. And one of the, the men chosen uh, was a husband and a father, and in agony cried out, I have kids. I have a wife. And so Maximilian Colby heard this, saw this, and, and volunteered to take that man's place. And to the guards, or to everyone's surprise, the guards allowed it. That that man would be able to live while Maximilian, Colby, and nine others would go to their deaths in the starvation chamber. We marvel at that kind of love and sacrifice. That he would die so that another would go free and live. Our hearts are, are stirred when we see people take these steps. Again, whether you're a Christian or not. Increasingly today we see that people, especially young people, care about issues of justice, care for the vulnerable and marginalized groups, care for the poor and immigrants. We want to see the world become a better place for future generations. In 2015, Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, was interviewed about why he was making uh, so many charitable donations, giving so much of his money away, and he responded that he and his wife had had so much opportunity in their lives, they felt a, a deep responsibility, an obligation almost, to make the world a better place for future generations. So these are all good desires, good impulses, but we have to ask the question, why? Why should we do that? What is it in our hearts that's leading us towards a life of sacrificial love? How do we explain that to someone? That, hey, we all are supposed to love sacrificially and care for the vulnerable. Does that logically flow from a worldview that's based in naturalism, for example? So if you're an atheist and you say, well, uh, evolution is the way things happened, and survival of the fittest explains what we see in our lives. An atheist worldview, this life is all there is. Does sacrificial love and care for the vulnerable naturally flow from such a worldview? Or if we were to say, hey, our, our culture emphasizes self-fulfillment. You know, you do you. Pursue your own interests, life about you being happy and getting what you want, and don't let anyone tell you how to do things any differently. Life's about you pursuing what you want. Does a life of sacrificial love for the good of other people, especially the vulnerable, flow logically from such a worldview? I would argue that it does not. And I would also argue that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the God of Scripture, more than anything else, more than any other worldview, 
leads us and fuels us towards a life of love and care for all people. Why? Friends, because the Bible is filled with examples of people like Ruth, of costly love and sacrifice. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that God is a God of sacrificial love. And we see this, of course, in the person of Jesus himself, right? At at the center of our faith is our Lord Jesus, giving his life away for the good of his people. Jesus dying on a cross, praying for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness, And so the heart of the gospel tells us that that God extends his love and grace to us when we didn't deserve it at all. We have a relationship with him by grace through faith. And then this God that we've been brought into relationship with calls us now to go out and love as he has loved us. To love sacrificially, to, to love our neighbors, to love even our enemies. And from a Christian worldview, we say, you know what? Our lives are not our own. And you know what? Our money is not our own. And so we are to give our lives away, to give ourselves away, to believe that true life is found not in pursuing my own interests, but in laying my life down for the cause of Christ, laying my life down for the good of my neighbors, the good of my city, the good of our world. So if you're listening here and you're not a Christian and you want to care for the vulnerable and you care about issues of justice and you care about racial justice and you care about immigrants and you care for the poor and you want to be like Ruth and you say, hey, this is a fantastic example in Scripture of sacrificial love. Good, those are all good things that we should care about as Christians. But I would say the only foundation that will sustain us in living that way, the only worldview that will actually fuel us towards a life of sacrificial love that's consistent and coherent is the gospel. We need the power of the gospel and the love of God to transform our hearts, to transform us, and then lead us to live in such a way. And friends, I would argue that if if you're a Christian and you're watching this and you want your friends to know about Jesus, you want your family members to have a relationship with Jesus and find eternal life, there's arguably no more powerful way to demonstrate that than by living out a life of sacrificial love, by loving like Ruth does here, with boldness, with sacrifice. Your neighbors, your family members might say, you know what, I don't agree with Joe about all this Jesus stuff. It sounds rather strange or it sounds rather exclusive or narrow or this or that. But you know what? I can't argue with how he loves people. I'm I'm amazed at his generosity. I'm amazed at his hospitality. I'm amazed at how he steps out and loves people around him. Let me also say, friends, that sometimes this takes time to play out. For example, right now we're living in this pandemic. And it seems like there's, there's benevolence all around us that people, Christian or not, just want to help and respond to crisis. And that's a good thing we see. But also what we'll say, I think, is over time, sometimes that uh, the help and the benevolence that is offered will, will wane, will 
will fade as the months and months drag on. We see this with natural disasters and crisis in the past. So as Christians, we can maintain the same level of care and love for our neighbors even after the initial wave of help appears. So as Christians, we need to be in this for the long haul, that people might see the love of God through us in the months and months and months and years ahead. And hopefully that through that, our, our neighbors will start to say, you know what, I kind of want more Christians to be around. I would love to have Christian neighbors because they're good neighbors, because they love me, they love my family, they care about our well-being, and they maybe then would start to want this God that we serve to be real. They start to maybe hope that, that Jesus is true and really who he says he is. And so friends, I want us to see that the gospel gives us the resources to live out this life of sacrificial love. So lesson number two from chapter three, how do we navigate crisis? We act with boldness and love. Back to Boaz and Ruth. Look at how the chapter ends. Verse 12. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. And so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed it, excuse me, placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. So you notice in verse 12 and 13, there's a slight hiccup in the plan. Boaz says, hey, there's actually another redeemer in the family, one who has the chance to marry you and redeem you before I would. He's a little bit closer to you. And we would go as we hear this, wait a second, no. We want Ruth and Boaz together. That's what this love story is all about. Uh, they're the match that we're, that we're rooting for, not some random guy that we just heard about. We want Ruth and Boaz. And so we'll have to wait till next week to see how the story unfolds. Ruth goes home the next morning to avoid scandal. She does so discreetly, doesn't want rumors to get out about what was going on. They have to sort some things out before the marriage becomes official. And Ruth goes home to Naomi, you see. And Boaz sends Ruth home with a lot of grain and food again. And this chapter ends with another subtle hint that, you know what, God's at work in Naomi's story. Ruth reports what happened and says in verse 17, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. This is a key phrase here. A key word in the text is empty. Don't return to Naomi empty-handed. Think about this. The book began with the problem of emptiness. No food, no offspring. Naomi has been emptied out. Her husbands, her two sons, her protection, her provision. She's been emptied out of her belief in the goodness of God. The problem in the book is emptiness. And here Boaz says he does not want 
Ruth to return home empty-handed. He does not want these women to be emptied, to remain empty. Now again, we could, we could gloss over that detail. We could think that that's just a subtle connection that we shouldn't make much of, but this is significant. The language here matters. It's as if Boaz is saying, and ultimately God is saying to them, you know what? You thought I emptied you out, but now through Boaz, I am the one working to fill your emptiness. This whole story is about your heart being restored, your hope being restored, your emptiness being filled. God is working behind the scenes to make this happen. So that uh, clever language inserted here by Boaz is just an, another clue, another hint, another pointer to the big picture. That, you know what? God is at work in this story. And often he works behind the scenes, Often, uh, he works in the details to restore us and to fill our emptiness. And it's important that we see this because, again, just we need to recognize some of us are tuning in this morning and are feeling emptied out by life. You're discouraged. You're, you're navigating loss and depression. You've been emptied out of your hope. Maybe you're fearful or anxious, you've been emptied out of your belief that God is good or for you, and you wonder where God is, or long for his peace, or long for his presence to be known in your life, this is just a subtle reminder in the text. No, God sees you. He doesn't want you to be empty-handed. He's at work in your life, even now, even if you can't see it, to restore your hope. And of course, we can look to the cross of Christ to see that this is true. So whether or not our circumstances change, we can know that God is for us, that God is good, that God has given us hope, because we can look to what Jesus has done for us. We look to the cross and see Jesus died for us, that our sins would be paid for, that we could be forgiven, that we could be brought home, adopted into the family of God. And so the hope for the Christian is not necessarily that, that earthly circumstances are going to change or work out rosy. The, the Christian hope is that we have eternal life, that we've been reconciled to the God who loves us, and now we have life in him both now and forever. We have a living hope. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest give you rest. It says, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus gives us rest and life and peace in him, reconciliation with the God who loves us and forgiveness of our sins. And so friends, I encourage you to consider trusting in Jesus today. He says we are to trust in him. The one who believes in him receives this life from God, but we have to respond. And so I invite you, if you're here this morning, you've never made that decision to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to turn from your sin and to follow him, put your faith in him, I invite you to do that today. Let today be the day. And if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, there's a way to indicate that on our connection card or fill out in the chat box. We'd love to, to follow up with you as a pastoral staff here and help you walk with Jesus and experience uh, the transformation and the life that he has for you. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for your word that, that reminds us of these incredible truths that you are for us, that you are at work in the details. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us uh, be like Ruth and Naomi in this story. Help us plan with hope. Help us trust that you're at work and step out in action. Help us demonstrate loyal love like Ruth. Would you move our hearts to care for the vulnerable and the people around us? And Jesus, we pray that, that more than anything, you'd, you'd stir our hearts to, to see you clearly, to love you more. Stir our affections that we might see you for who you are, that we might worship you and follow you as our Savior and King. We love you, Lord. Please guide us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. Uh, we are about to sing one closing song to, to worship God together, and then we'll have the after party on Zoom, just if you want to see a few friendly faces. Otherwise, uh, be blessed.